We are parents, we are doctors, we are first responders, teachers, and concerned citizens who have found ourselves at a crossroads. We see our freedoms being stripped away and we can no longer stay silent. We are millions strong, united in a thundering voice and imperative mission that cannot and will not be ignored. We are standing up for the basic human right to raise our own children, earn a living, and make our own medical decisions without the tyrannical overreach that has been forced upon us here in California, across the country, and around the world. We are here to amplify the voices, moving the needle, bringing forth truth, and provide education and resources with tangible tools and expert insights. We are The Unity Project, and this is our podcast. What's up, everyone? I'm Laura Sextro, CEO of The Unity Project and your podcast host. On today's episode, we talk to Dr. Chris Martinson. He is the co-founder of Peak Prosperity. He has a PhD in pathology and toxicology from Duke University and a master's degree from Cornell. He's also a strategic advisory council member here at The Unity Project. We jump right into the manufactured hysteria of monkeypox and its super spreader European rave origin as well as discussions on new data and COVID and vaccine reaction based on blood type. We talk about the World Economic Forum's globalist agenda and so much more. I hope you gain new insights from Dr. Martinson. He's a master of data translation and information scout. On today's episode, we look forward to you joining us. Today, I'm so excited to have Dr. Chris Martinson joining us. He is a phenomenal human being. I can't say enough good about him. I'm uh, so excited because I've had the opportunity to have several conversations. Uh, Dr. Chris Martinson has a PhD in pathology and toxicology from Duke, and he also has an MBA from Cornell. In addition to that, he is a co-founder of Peak Prosperity. He is an author of many books. Um, His work has so many insights and is in such high demand by the media, as well as the academic community, uh, the civic and private organizations around the world, including institutions such as the UN, the UK House of Commons, and the US state legislatures. And in addition to that, certainly not least, he is on the Unity Project Strategic Advisory Council. So welcome, Chris. We're so happy to have you here. Um, There's so much we can talk about. The world is crazy right now. Uh, between the World Health Organization and their um, agenda for for uh, globalization, as well as what's going on with monkeypox. I almost don't know where to start because there's just so much to talk about. So um, maybe let's dive in and just get the whole monkeypox thing out of the way, because it seems crazy to me. I was just listening to several um, podcasts. I also read a Newsweek article that stated that it it was framing it with kind of this mass hysteric, excuse me, hysteria lens, um, that people should be drastically concerned about monkeypox. And lo and behold, as I understand it, monkeypox is something that is really contained typically within the continent of Africa, even within Africa, probably very specific to the Congo region. Um, It's also spread in the similar way that uh, HIV is spread, where it's body fluid contact. So what are, what are your thoughts on this in terms of uh, how it's spread, how dangerous this virus can become? Oh, well, Laura, thanks for that, that great intro and good to be, be here with you today. Um, well, what I've said about monkeypox so far is that the only thing we have to fear from monkeypox is fear itself, not, not the actual virus. The virus has got an R naught below one, which for those who are probably now sophisticated in our post-COVID 
world, uh, that simply means that each person who gets it transmits it on average to less than one other human being, which means that this is a self-limiting virus. Anything with an R0 right. below one dies out all on its own. So it has to come from a reservoir somewhere to keep sort of getting reintroduced. That reservoir is animals, and those animals tend to live in Africa. There's a clade of monkeypox in Congo, which you mentioned. The clade that we're dealing with actually comes from West Africa. It's sort of a Nigerian variant. Comes out of Nigeria. It actually comes out every year or two. There's a case or two or three or five that pop out. So this isn't the first time uh, we've seen this come around. And so this particular variant, this clade, this family of virus, uh, monkeypox, came out of Nigeria, landed in Portugal or Spain, one of those two places, seems to have been passed mainly from a couple of raves turned out to be super spreader events. So there the R-naught was, was above one for some reason. <laughs> and it turned out people were having unprotected sort of dangerous sex or something like that is the story. At any rate, nothing to fear about this. I've looked into it. The thing that I was most alarmed about was, oh my gosh, had this actually been monkeyed around with, so to speak, in a lab? Had, <laughs> no, were there any no telltale signatures here where humans had been doing things to it to, to make it more gain of function and all that kind of stuff, like I'm convinced happened with the SARS-CoV-2 virus for all of its genetic signatures. So good news, this we can track this back. There's nothing in the sequences that have been published so far to suggest this is anything other than a normal, natural thing. It's come out of the woodwork many times in the past. It goes back into the woodwork. I'm really convinced that's going to happen here again. And the only thing that I would be a little concerned about is, A, it does seem to be transmitting a bit between humans, which is unusual, but not that unusual, and you'll know why, because um, for people who have altered or suppressed immune systems, you're a little bit more likely to catch it than not. And so for some reason, there's a lot of people out there whose immune systems are not up the curve at this point in time. So I think that's a partial explanatory, but even with that, People who transmit it are symptomatic. It's very easy to avoid people who have fevers, blisters, rashes, things like that. So this should be pretty easily contained. So you mentioned, well, let, before we go into what you just mentioned, um, let me add that what was troubling to me is that I just learned the U.S. government has invested $119 million in a vaccine for monkeypox for a virus that, as you just explained, we really... Um, are not, we should have no concerns over and uh, it doesn't spread. It's not the most communicable disease. There's a very specific pathway for disease transmission and it's much more difficult than what we saw, let's say with the COVID-19 uh, virus. So I was really, really shocked to learn that the US government is already spending taxpayer dollars on beefing up their monkeypox vaccine. Yeah, 120 million bucks-ish, right? And they had yeah. done that when there had been exactly one case in the United States, a case in Massachusetts, uh, who had traveled over from Europe. And as well, uh, we also, some other sour notes are that already Pfizer has a monkeypox vaccine that is before the FDA for approval. There's some other ones. So the question is, why are so many companies busy working on a vaccine for something which as of two days ago, last date I had, there were 162 cases worldwide. Um, mm -hmm. that, I mean, in the, in the scheme of things, that's not even an orphan drug, meaning a drug that, that's really designed to go after a very, very limited number of people. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I can't imagine where or under what circumstances we would even begin to entertain an actual full-on vaccination campaign. Because let's be clear about this, the typical vaccine for monkeypox is the same as for smallpox. 
It's the vaccinia variola virus. You put it in. I have a little scar on my arm because I got this when I was born, uh, when, back when I was a child. They gave the smallpox vaccine up to about 1980, I think was the last year they gave it. And it actually causes a pretty severe reaction. You're, you, that, that scar that you get in your arm is because that live virus that's put in you, which is a relative of smallpox and monkeypox, it's pretty, it creates a pretty decent reaction at the site and, and you get a, a scar forming around that. Now, the US government in the military actually got all excited or worried about smallpox and started doing some vaccinations back in, I think, 2003 or so. And, and there were some pretty bad reactions, not in the people who got the vaccine, but for people who were immune compromised, who came in contact with people who'd gotten the vaccine, because again, you're getting a live virus. It replicates and you can shed that. And then people around you can pick it up and get sick from that. It's happened to a child and a wife of, of a serviceman. So, so the idea that we would just begin mass vaccinating for a very low incidence disease, that's going to die itself out is, is not, doesn't make any sense at all. Um, and I believe that was 13 million doses that they got for that $119 million. So give or take 10 million, 10, 10 bucks a dose, but that's 13 million. I can't imagine 13 million people who would be in need of well, this particular vaccine at this stage. It sounds like the pharmaceutical companies are monkeying around with the vaccine, much like they did with COVID. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. So just bringing the uh, cash register. Yep. <laughs> so you mentioned that um, there could be a concern for people who are immunocompromised. And you said that it seems like we have a lot of people right now in the country, or maybe even in the human population that have somewhat immunocompromised systems. And I have to ask the question, do you think that this is related to the COVID-19 vaccine and the prevalence of, of this in the human population and pushing for not only the original vaccine, but the boosters that continue to come and in fact, I'm sure we all know that we heard Bill Gates uh, talking about the fact that he is a big proponent and believes that everyone should be boosted every six months. Um, so do you think that this is having an impact on people's um, immune systems? Absolutely. I know it's having an impact on people's immune systems, and we have lots of data supporting that. Of course, it was a theory for a period of time that maybe they would because the idea behind these vaccines, which includes both the adenovirus vectors, which is the J&J, &J, and the AstraZeneca, as well as the mRNA platforms, which is Pfizer-Moderna, all of those are actually organized around the idea of putting the spike protein, the whole big giant spike protein from SARS-CoV-2 or something close to it back into your body and have your body manufacture that, one through a vaccine virus vector, the other through an mRNA platform. So either way, you're still manufacturing the spike protein, and we know that this spike protein has its own toxicity uh, profile. And not in everybody, but in some people, it does seem to have a, a pretty decently bad sort of an impact on their immune system. So we know that, we've known that for a while, the theories have been there for a long time. We have the, the data to understand why we would formulate those theories, but now we have real world follow-up from that. Recently in Israel, they just announced a big study over there where they looked at the immune response of people who'd gotten the vaccine compared to controls who hadn't to COVID itself. So the people who had gotten the vaccine had a markedly reduced response as measured by, there's two types of proteins you can make that we measure for, two types of antibodies you would make against COVID. One against the spike protein, that's the S. And then there's this other one called the N, which is the nucleocapsid protein. So if you make an antibody against that, 
by definition, you are making a antibody against the whole virus. If you've only had the vaccines, the only thing you have in your body, the only thing you can make an antibody against is the S or the spike protein. So okay. they measured people who had been vaccinated, people who hadn't been vaccinated, then measured the level of N antibodies that they made in their bodies after infection or exposure to the SARS-CoV-2 virus. It turned out that the people who had been vaccinated had maybe 15% of the actual antibody response as compared to controls who hadn't gotten the vaccines. So that mm -hmm. speaks to the idea that their bodies are not functioning optimally or even normally in response to exposure to that particular virus. So we, we know that we can at least say that. But more broadly, we now have a lot of data accumulating that people's white blood cells are um, impacted by the vaccines and that this dysregulates them for a period of time in their ability to mount a response. And I would go further and say the data is not 100% conclusive, but really piling up that with every sequential booster, that's just an additive or cumulative insult to uh, people's immune systems. So then when someone says, you know, someone says to me, as an example, you really need to get the vaccine because even though maybe they can admit that you can, even though after having been vaccinated, you can still acquire and transmit the COVID-19 virus. Uh, they're under the very strongly held belief that if you're vaccinated and you continue to get the boosters, that at least uh, there's some protective measures that are in place um, so that they won't have severe illness should in fact they continue to get the COVID virus. And what you're saying is that that's the exact opposite, right? In fact, if you get the, the vaccine and you continue to get boosted, then the likelihood of you experiencing more severe illness is much greater. Did I hear that correctly? Well, in fact, anecdotally, I think people can start to observe this for themselves. And so mm -hmm. anecdotally, we're, we're accumulating a lot of data. And if we had a functioning CDC, we would actually have hard data around this at this point in time. But, but for now, it's, it's kind of at the anecdotal stage. But the anecdote would go like this. My cousin, my coworker, who's been double boosted or triple boosted, seems to have gotten COVID sequentially or serially or is out a lot from work at this point in time or is having a harder run with this. And still those people who, who have maybe double boosted, double boosted, triple boosted even will say often, well, I'm really glad at least I was boosted because think how much worse it would have been, right? Anecdotally, I can tell you that there are a lot of people who are unvaccinated who aren't having that bad of a run with us or haven't even had uh, COVID in the first place. So it's really murky data. So what we should have done is this culture had said, listen, if this is an age stratified illness for whatever reason, with every 10 years of age, it exponentially strikes harder. So it's definitely an age-related thing. And secondarily, it would be related to your comorbidities. So there's certain comorbidities and certain ages above which I think it's probably a no-brainer to have gotten the vaccine back when we had the original variants. Now that we have Omicron, which these vaccines do not work against. In fact, a person who was double vaccinated is more likely by 40 to 60% than somebody who's not vaccinated at all to catch Omicron and develop a high viral load around that. So the, the vaccines are actually giving what's called negative vaccine effectiveness or negative VE. It's making it more likely that people are gonna catch this Omicron variant. Even leaving all that aside, the Omicron variant, the, the, the ICU statistics and the um, mortality statistics compared to Delta, it has a hazard ratio of about 
0.27, meaning it's, it's only got 27% of the chance of sending you into the hospital. And it's only has a 9% chance of killing you compared to Delta. So it's a much weaker version of this virus than we were facing before. And uh, that's just how the data stacked up at this point in time. But Laura, this team, how many times can we say this? These current vaccines are ineffective against Omicron. They don't work. In fact, they might even make things be working in the opposite direction, at least when it comes to catching and transmitting. Because remember, this was supposed to be about getting to herd immunity. So with herd immunity, a herd immunity results because individuals within that population are no longer susceptible to that particular uh, viral vector or the other pathogen, so they can't catch it and transmit it. That's the firebreak. That's what's supposed to stop the, the transmission. Well, this, these vaccines don't do that. In fact, they may speed it up when it comes to Omicron. And then secondarily, you might say, well, okay, so it doesn't stop that, but at least it's going to make it so that we have a less bad run at this uh, particular virus and this disease. And I think that's clearly true above a certain age and morbidity level. Below, right around there, it gets gray. And then below another level, I think it's actually the opposite of that, that you're taking mm -hmm. on far more risk than you are benefit, it, especially when it comes to this Omicron variant. I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's so um, insane that as a that our government continues to try and push very aggressively these vaccines, and in particular in the pediatric population, I'm sure you've heard we've talked about this several times that there's there's all kinds of bills in the state of California right now um, that are aimed at mass vaccinating the entire population, and in particular the pediatric population. So I, I struggle to understand why that is. I struggle to understand um, how people still believe that there's any um, valid use for these particular vaccines in the human population under a certain age. Um, again, if you don't have significant comorbidities, if you're a person that's under the age of 75, that's, that's relatively healthy, uh, why would you be going out and, and seeking to get this vaccine over and over and over again? There's just no benefit to it. I, I, I've struggled to find any data point that shows a benefit. In fact, I think there's a plethora of information out there that just like you were saying, uh, that indicates the exact opposite, right? That there's so much negative um, consequences to taking these vaccines, whether it's A, that there's just no protection um, or B, that you can become vaccine injured. Um, I listened to a podcast with Dr. Peter McCullough and he was mentioning something about blood type. Do you have any information on blood type and the impact that these vaccines or the virus might have? The correlation uh, between blood type A? Yeah, there's been a lot of data coming out about that. I, I can't possibly begin to understand what the mechanism of action might be. But yes, certain mm -hmm. blood types seem to be slightly more protective or more at risk uh, from, mm -hmm. from catching the disease. But we're finding lots of factors that are influencing now why somebody would get more or less of the bad outcomes that would come from this. You know, we all know people who've been around the, the worst pandemic of anybody's lifetimes, allegedly, and, and they've been in households even where everybody in the household has gotten sick, but they haven't gotten sick and they don't have antibodies. Who knows what's happened to them? But there are a lot of people who, for some, for some reason, on the far end of the bell curve, nothing happens to them. They don't catch it. They don't even mount an antibody response. It's like they're, they're Teflon, you know, it just bounces right. off. And then at the other end, there are people who have a very bad run of it. Now, we have some data now. We understand that vitamin D levels matter a lot, right? And we've known mm -hmm. that for two years, obviously. So 
above 50 nanograms per ml as a starting point prior to getting COVID, right? Not as a treatment when you're already hooked up to an ICU vent machine, right? But I mean, if you had a high level of vitamin D prior to getting exposed to COVID, the chance of you ending up in the ICU is vastly, vastly lower compared to somebody mm -hmm. who has a low level of vitamin D. We know the same thing around zinc. We have data for selenium. We have, it's a very complicated thing. So some people in, in within that, it looks like blood type is now another one of these dimensions that, that has some mm -hmm. sort of an influence on this wildly complicated thing that's right. that we call um, SARS-CoV-2. It's, right. it's a little tiny thing. It has so, so many impacts. It's, it's bizarre, but we're learning a lot. Well, and of course, where we continue to learn about um, the vaccine companies, the, the pharmaceutical companies, Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, and really, in my opinion, the great lengths that they've gone to, to hide um, the lack of research. And not only the lack of research around these, these vaccines, but also what research they have done, it produced tremendous negative results. Um, so, and, and it's always fascinating to me. So I know uh, this is, you've probably spoken about this ad nauseum, but I think it's worth repeating, maybe digging down into the pharmaceutical companies and the corruption and the, the I don't, dare I say collusion, I guess, between the pharmaceutical companies and the government um, and, and the money trail. So maybe you can give us an overview of what that looks like for people that are unaware of just how closely embedded the pharmaceutical companies are in this process and the extreme conflicts of interest between the government and the pharmaceutical companies. Well, sure. It's, it's you know, as Charlie Munger, who's the right-hand man of Warren Buffett said, you show me the incentive, I'll show you the outcome. The pharma companies, of course, are heavily, heavily incentivized to make money. That's really all they seem to really care about. And they do a very good job at that. And in the context of that, they will bend every core, every, every rule. They will, you know, do everything they possibly can to rig the system in their favor you know what, maybe we should just expect that that's okay, I guess, as long as you have an active regulatory body that's going to be there providing some form of effective counter effect attack against that, some form of consequence that would result, right? So let's, you know, in a perfect world, if a corporation violates something above some certain societally agreed threshold, they would be put out of business. We would call that the death penalty for a corporation. Mm -hmm. Hey, if corporations are people, according to the Supreme Court, why can't we apply that? So there would be certain things I would say and submit that if a company goes beyond a certain level of what we would consider societally acceptable, they ought to go mm -hmm. out of business. I think some of the pharma companies have right. crossed that threshold over and over again because mm -hmm. they've hidden data that shows that their products are actually harming people, killing people, maiming people. Um, and that's not, to me, that's above a threshold, right? If we think, if we say that, listen, a drunk driver deserves to go to jail, even if they haven't hurt anybody, because they might have. That's our threshold. Well, fine. Then what about a company then that, that specifically knows they're harming people and suppresses that so they can make a few extra bucks for a little while, right? So right. that's really what we're talking about here. It's pretty gross. And, mm -hmm. uh, and that's, what it, that's absolutely what happened in this case. So the problem is we don't have effective regulators. They're all captured in this system. Mm -hmm. They all, you know, and they get these like the NIH treatment panel, all these people have either money directly coming from pharma companies or they get money from the NIH who gets money from the pharma companies. It's just, it's all about the money, right? So 
we have a, a very broken system at this point in time. And I would tell anybody, this has been, yes, there's Lily Tomlin, the, the comedian, she said, as cynical as I am, I find it hard to keep up, you know? And, <laughs> and that's how I found, because I was pretty jaded coming into this, Laura. I am shocked at just how gross it's been to see yeah. everything from local hospitals to individual doctors to the entire giant NIH FDA system and pharma system, how willing they've been to sacrifice lives simply because mm -hmm. that was easier for them. They made more money at it. It took a little risk or liability off of their shoulders, or they didn't have to, you know, be brave in any way, shape or form. I mean, we've seen a lot of that. So, so this whole COVID experience medically has shown me who the moral cowards and intellectual frauds are and right. the opposite. <laughs> Who, who are the real he moral heroes in this and in, in intellectual giants? And, and so that's right. that the good part, such as it is, is I know who these people are now. Um, mm -hmm. And I've seen just how terrible these people are, all of which I would summarize, Laura, as caveat emptor. I will no longer go into any sort of a medical situation with wide mm -hmm. open trust and say, you know, heal me. Um, right. I'm going to be checking everything <laughs> for me or I a agree. loved one. We go into I hospital I felt like I needed to have a medical advocate long before COVID. And now um, I question really whether I want to go into any medical environment for just about anything at this point. Um, and I find it to be so ironic, like as you were just describing, that there seems to be so many um, levels or layers of individuals and organizations involved in this um, that were either complicit or going along with and, and, uh, contributing to what's happened and in, in this country in terms of um, people being denied care, uh, pharmaceutical companies colluding, pharmaceutical companies having extreme conflicts of interest, hiding information on the, the true um, outcomes for people uh, with regard to these vaccines. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And what I find to be just incredibly ironic is that you for so long used to hear this, we're all in this together, do the right thing. Go, make sure that you wear a mask, make sure that you go out and get vaccinated. And the people that um, questioned that and bucked the system and bucked the narrative, they were looked upon as people that, that were actually evil, right? I mean, we had segments of society that were really classifying like our position and what we're even discussing today as just pure evil, so much so that this conversation that you and I are having can't even be put on platforms like mainstream platforms like YouTube and Instagram. Um, but the irony in all of it is that the people that are going along with the narrative um, are the ones that are actually either, again, complicit or they're propagating, uh, I think, genocide on the on the human population. So, uh, well, I would agree. And, and so this is the, the one piece of information I keep chipping at because you have to start somewhere. And I see a lot more people waking up and starting to ask questions. And maybe they've got those uncomfortable observations lurking around like Aunt Sally was 42 and she just killed over from a, a saddle embolus or, you know, Uncle John had a, had a heart attack and he was fit as a fiddle. And, and so people mm -hmm. are starting to notice those things. Now, the ultimate test for any set of public health interventions. So, so before we were talking about your decision whether or not to get a vaccine is a very personal, very specific decision that needs to be made. Your age, mm -hmm. your past medical history, your comorbidities, there's a lot of things that could come into play for that. And so but that's individual. When we're talking about, let's abstract to the public health arena, now we're talking at the NIH, the CDC level, the Fauci's of the world, 
or the Australian public health body, they're, they're responsible for the overall outcome. So I would argue very simply and cleanly that if these particular vaccines rolled out in the midst of a pandemic, which was questionable, but they did it, then they ought to be measured by what's the overall highest level of impact. Now, gets a little murky in a place like the United States where everything's happening at once, but we have a really big Petri dish, we'll call it Australia. It had mm -hmm. no COVID cases for a really long time. In fact, it's COVID cases just started within the last few months, right? Omicron busted down the doors and off it went to the races. So we have a clean test bed of several tens of millions of people who were up to 90% vaccinated plus boosters. And their all-cause mortality, Laura, was way above what it should have been. It was screaming like standard wow. deviations above what it should have been. And it, wow. and it wasn't in old people or infirm people mm -hmm. or people with big comorbidity se sequences. It was all across the age spectrum of people who were getting vaccinated. Wow. And so at a minimum, and we know they're what was we that, know that they're right? highly vaccinated, right? That that highly we vaccinated, ninety five percent. Yes, yeah, yeah ninety five percent wow. double, but they're also boosted and all that other stuff. So, mm -hmm. so the first question for the public health authorities is, well, why did that happen? And if they want us, you know, you should look into it, and maybe we find out it was because they drank themselves to death, or it was fentanyl <laughs> snuck in, or or something. But we have no explanation, no inquiry, mm -hmm. and they just shut down the conversation. But it's actually very clear and obvious to me that if what they were doing was working, they would not have more people than expected dying and not just a few, but a lot. And well, so something has gone wrong and they ought to be held to account for that. Sure, and, and that reminds me of the um, insurance information that came out here in the United States. Right. Uh, do you remember that study where they were saying all cause mortality is up um, so significantly that it would be, it would almost be like a once in a, in a hundred or 200 year catastrophic event. Actually, let me go further than that. If it had yeah. been a 10% increase in all cause mortality within the age groups, that would have mm -hmm. been a one in 200 year event. It was actually 40% higher outside of a war, which could explain that this would be a one in about a billion year event. It's, it's a very rare thing that should not have happened. So right. what we what we do know then is something is happening to the human population and not in a good way, um, and it, we're we're getting very clear indicators, key indicators that people need to be paying attention to, and it seems like um, there's a smoke and mirrors game that the that the governments, really all of the governments around the world, it feels like are trying to play on the human population, right? They're trying to do this this total smoke and mirrors, like look here, but don't look there to try and hide the fact that it's now becoming very obvious that um, our response as a human population um, to the COVID-19 vaccine has had some really dire consequences and will continue to unless we start to realize that vaccinating the human population with a vaccine that has clear indication of negative consequences does not provide protection is um, long-term, we need to stop doing it. Well, absolutely. And this has been a normal part. I don't know why things got so confused in the last two years. And I think it's because there were parties out there specifically obfuscating, confusing, and, and doing mm -hmm. things. I mean, the media couldn't even keep it clear. What's the difference between an infection and a case, right? It used to be a case <laughs> with somebody who had to show up for some medical reason. They would have symptoms that would necessitate or in some way lead to seeking medical attention, right? 
an infection is just an infection. So in a normal flu year, lots of people get infected. Most of them just sweat it out at home for seven days in bed, right? Takes the time off of work. And the people who do show up with flu at the hospital would be the case. And then the cases are the ones who actually have the worst run of it usually. And so they have worse outcomes on average. So that's what it used to be. We couldn't even keep that separate, right? All of a sudden the case became anybody who was detected as even with a PCR test run up to these impossibly high you know, cycle threshold levels of 40 or more. They might've been completely asymptomatic, didn't even know they had something, but a machine test said they right. did and they counted as a case. We lost simple terminology, right? So, so that was just bizarre to me. But we used to know about vaccines that it's very complex. Things sometimes go wrong. This isn't like a simple thing where your body has a machine and we give it a little dose of, of an antigen and it pumps out you know, a, a unit of protection. It's not like that. There's dozens of different types of cells. There's your own particular history. There's all sorts of cross reactivities and things you need to learn and ways you have to be careful. But let me tell you how they weren't careful. To me, this is one of the most illustrative things out there. So, hey, warp speed, it's a pandemic. Let's say we just didn't know what we were doing. We forgot everything we knew about vaccine development, how risky right. it is. Okay, fine. So we decided as a nation or as a world, we're going to go forward with this warp speed. So we do that. The first thing you got to do though, is you got to say, look, we kind of cut a few corners here. You know, we didn't do like a long-term uh, gestational study on primates. You know, we, we gave right. some shots to a couple of rats. Things looked okay, but they're not a good model for humans. So you would at least say, now we have to collect the data because we're actually running a real world experiment. We're going to learn some things. Okay. Yeah. So they start giving these vaccines in December of um, 2021 there. And then uh, next thing you know, um, in December, 2020, sorry, the early part of 2021, January, February, March, they're collecting data. Right. So we finally get our hands on that report through that FDA FOIA release, the Pfizer documents. We look in there, 1,222 people have, have died. We don't know directly of, with, because of, we don't know, nobody investigated, but they got reported. But here's what jumped out at me, Laura, that was so startling in that. They listed all these things, myocarditis, pericarditis, various immune things, neurological issues, Bell's palsy, et cetera. Mm -hmm. There's something in there that's missing. This is the case of the dog that did not bark. So they had 120 million doses had been shipped, about 80 million had been given. So they had plenty of real world data. The thing that's missing from that, which is completely obvious was women report having their menstrual cycles dysregulated extraordinarily. They're bleeding much more heavily, much more frequently. They've stopped. Something's happened, right? Right. And they would have had plenty of signal to pick that up. And it wasn't mentioned then in that first 90-day post-marketing surveillance. It wasn't mentioned in the next year. And it's still not in the provider label that ships out with this stuff to this day. There's Slate articles written about it. There's Facebook groups. There's like, there's groups of women who, this is very, this is one of the most widely known side effects right. amongst women that still isn't in the label anywhere. Nobody's looking out for it. And I can tell you, there's not a chance they missed it. Of course not. It, that's, a, that's a really good point that you brought up. How could they miss it? I, I personally know probably 10 women that have had, um, that have complained about that. It's, that's a widely known, it seems like a widely known fact, even though they're not um, talking about it or putting it in the label. Wow. Right. And to this day, the, you will hear a statement. I could find you one from this week because I hear them every week, which says, oh, this is one of the most well-studied, safe and effective vaccines on the market, and it has no impact on fertility. Well, mm -hmm. uh, I'm no OBGYN, but I'm pretty sure that if you dysregulate 
uh, a woman's reproductive cycle, you are de facto by definition impacting fertility. I was just going to say that's the literal definition of impacting it's fertility. It's the literal definition. Right. So, right. So, wow. so this is this is what we're up against is, is like that's the level of negligence and, and mm-hmm. oversight failure that we're dealing with at this point in time. Are you familiar with a gentleman named Alex Karen? I think he's Yugoslavian. Mm-mm. If not, I'm going to, I'm going to introduce you. Uh, I actually listened to a really interesting um, meeting that he was holding and he cited a paper and it was just, it was a really interesting um, correlation, but he cited a paper in which they talk about, they did a study of civilizations over the course of history and they correlated the um, health of a nation to the, I guess, uh, you will call it totalitarian state and the um, more unhealthy that the nation is. So there's more communicable diseases, the more there's a direct correlation between the um, dictatorial or totalitarian state of that government. And I found that to be really interesting. And I would just love to get your thoughts on something like that, because it seems to me in this country, Uh, the United States of America, which has been the freest, most opportunity-giving civilization, uh, in my opinion, in human history, all of a sudden we're faced with a pandemic. We have created a tremendous amount of fear. And at the same time that you're seeing this pandemic, you're also starting to see, in my opinion, um, things that feel very dictatorial in nature, whether it's the lockdowns or the masking mandates or the travel restrictions or um, any number of things that we could cite that has happened over the last two years. So it feels very much like there is a direct correlation between those two things. And then, so I'd love to hear your your thoughts on that. And then I'd like to talk about the World Health Organization and what's happening there. Well, I think it's pretty clear. And and thanks for that. I can't wait to talk to Alex because I'm I'm just about to re-interview Matthias Desmet about uh, Mm -hmm. his mass psychosis formation. He's the Belgian psychologist who's got a pretty good handle, I think, on the hows and the whys. People sometimes go down these fairly dark paths where we fall under what's called a a mass formation or a mass psychosis, where, where people lose their ability to think rationally, emotions really come to the fore and they get whooped into these fervors that, you know, in times past was the Salem witch trials, was um, uh, the Ottoman Empire's uh, atrocities, which was uh, Weimar Germany turning into the Third Reich, all of that, right? So I think those tendencies were already in play before COVID. COVID just really put them on steroids, right? And, And it was used, I think, somewhat maliciously and very negligently by some people in order to advance certain aims, which include this idea that there are people out there, let's let's face it, who legit think we ought to be in a more totalitarian society, right? They they I think they don't understand where prosperity really comes from or or why they're even able to have the free time necessary to ponder. Wouldn't it be good if everybody thought exactly like me? Or even um, lived in a totalitarian society, because I, I would almost guarantee that anyone who has lived in the United States of America and has been free and blessed to, to live here, uh, you put them in a, a totalitarian uh, regime, under a totalitarian regime, and I guarantee that they um, have no idea what that feels like. Yeah, and I, I think if they read just even one or two books on it, they would soon discover <laughs> that um, it seems like a lot of fun on the way in, but eventually you end up regretting it because yeah. suddenly, you know, you're under the thumb of that same sure. system and, and it doesn't go the way you wanted it to and all that. It's, it's very short-sighted and selfish to, to think that 
a small group of people ought to be in control of what the broader masses of people do think, say, revere, mm -hmm. worship, eat, drink, on and on and on. I mean, there's no there's no end to what mm -hmm. these totalitarians want to do. And, and as we're as we're uh, having this podcast right now, the WEF, they're meeting in Davos, and just mm -hmm. I can barely stand to, to watch what they're talking about because it creeps me out so much because they're just thrilled with the ideas of, of totalitarianism. They just think everything mm -hmm. that they want to have happen ought to be, they, they want the human livestock capital tag bagged and controlled, right? You know, mm -hmm. if they could put a little chip on all of us, they would, and we know that, right? And and uh, and so they, I think they owe it to whoever these people are who believe in those authoritarian pieces and why it's going to be different this time, because we have smartphones and AI, it'll be better, right? They owe it to themselves and to, to us to to spell that whole thing out and explain exactly how that works. Because we all know they're thinking it. We just come on out and tell us what the plan is. Because then we could have a full-throated debate, but that's what you don't get in these totalitarian regimes. But the, I took a bunch of psych eval tests on myself and the thing I score most highly <laughs> on is freedom of, of thought. I, I, I value actual diversity of, of thought. What I used to believe 10 years ago is not what I believe today. I change my mind all the time. I value that really highly. Maybe that makes me unusual, but that's it for me. And all these people who are busy talking about diversity don't know the first thing about it. They don't value right. it. In fact, they hate it. In fact, they're threatened by it. And they would rather we all thought in lockstep around a set of approved thoughts. Right. And um, I just think at this particular juncture of human history, this one, where it's 8 billion people, we're hitting peak oil, there's, we're running out of fresh water. If you're in the building trades, we're running out of sand because we don't have enough sand to build things with. We're just, we have to come to a new negotiated sort of agreement and that's gonna require really wide open, full-throated discussions. We have to have the most amazingly, right. you know, contentious sort of scientific debates. And there are people out there who wanna go the other way. They wanna shut right. all that inquiry down as if, as if everything that we need to know is already known. And I'll wow. tell you, that's not the I case. I think, first of all, you're probably closely aligned with what our founding fathers were, which is, which I, in my opinion, was kind of the genius of, of, um, and beauty of, of the framework that we have today for this country. And as far as the other people, I think that they are really, um, they believe wholeheartedly, and it's, it's a strange concept to me as well, uh, that their government knows best and their government will be able to provide the best structure. And it's such a, it's such an inverse of really what this country stands for, right? Our, this country is founded on the principles of, of small government, um, of individual um, responsibility and contribution. And it seems like at some, somewhere over the last two years, and I'm sure it's certainly been happening um, longer than the last two years, but the, it feels like the last two years really highlighted and magnified um, that we have somehow lost our um, understanding of that. And now it feels very much like a lot of the people in this country are interested in government taking care of them. And uh, I feel that feels very strange and foreign to me. It's not a, it's not a comfortable place that I, that I am. And it sounds like uh, you would not be in a comfortable place either with, with that. So what's happening? You mentioned uh, what's happening right now um, in Davos. Tell me what's going on there. I think I have an understanding, but I'd love uh, to talk to you about it and get your get your take on it because um, I've heard m multiple different opinions. People saying, "Well, 
you know, it really doesn't matter if the World Health Organization is in charge of pandemic response, because here in the United States, we've got our own constitution and we have, you know, congressional and Senate oversight. And I, I somewhat smirk when I hear that because um, apparently those people have not been around in the United States for the last two years to observe the fact that our constitution has basically been crumpled up and thrown out the window. So, yeah. Uh, well, to tie all that together, um, and, and thank you for that that framing. Mm -hmm. um, I'm confused by people who think that that government can take care of something, or that the WHO can take care of something, because you have to actually go into those places and those organizations, and you discover they're just full of people. Um, often, not the best and the brightest people that that society has to dish up. Many times, those are often private industry. They're just people. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it, I, there's, I don't know how certain people anointed as if the government somehow when you go to work for the government, you pass through some membrane of purity and you become, you know, a, a new person who, who operates in some new way. Um, you know, I'll just say sort of waggishly, I've never accidentally created a Superfund site, you know, but my government has. <laughs> right. You know, and. Uh, and, and the WHO, I was screaming in, in, in sorry, January 2020, I was screaming, please shut the flights down from China. And the WHO was going, right. well, we don't know. That would maybe impact world trade as if they were the WTO instead of the WHO. And then they were later like, well, that would be racist. Like, oh, even George Washington knew when they had um, a smallpox outbreak back in the Revolutionary mm -hmm. War, he knew to limit travel between you know, groups. That's the first rule of pandemics. And that was the WHO that people are now going, well, maybe if we just gave them more power, this will go better right. next time, right? No, they've already proven themselves incompetent. And in private business, if you reward incompetence, you get more of it. Why do you mm -hmm. get less of it when it's government? I, I don't understand these, these lines of thinking at all. <laughs> I agree. I don't understand it. It seems um, insane to me. And I'm I was laughing because you said shut the flights down from China and I was thinking the same thing, but instead uh, we shut the border down to Canada and um, we all got locked in our own home. So <laughs> there's that. And we see how that worked out for all of us. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, it's, and again, I think it's interesting that people have this, this uh, assumption or reliance that because we have this thing called the constitution that again, even if we, we, we decide that we're going to hand over all this power to the world health organization that, you know, we have the constitution to fall back on. And again, I look at everything that's happened over the last two years and continues to happen. That his is a direct absolute violation of the constitution. We know that our constitution has been attacked. Um, so it, it, it always, surprises me that people do have this um, almost um, polar opposite kind of uh, beliefs where you have, in one sense, they, they're they not overly concerned about the world health stepping in in this sense, but then, and they believe somehow that the constitution is, is, is continuing to be upheld in the way that um, it was designed to be, so. Yeah, constant, any law is only as right. good as the judiciary that, that stands between that law and the populace, right? So if you have an activist judiciary that's not interested in, in actually enacting the constitution, then it doesn't really matter that you have one. It, it's, mm -hmm. it's irrelevant. Um, a quick example of that for me would be civil asset forfeiture. I can find no provision for that anywhere within the constitution. It's blatantly anti-constitutional, but you know, if you look at the amount of, of money that people lost to robberies last year, compared to the amount of money people lost to having 
their money taken from them by police and charged under the civil asset forfeiture, meaning no, no proof of crime has been provided. You have to prove a negative that that, that, that didn't come from you know, some illegal activity, which is a very high bar. Mm-hmm. And governments walked off with state, local, municipal, federal governments walked off with more funding through that process than people lost to robberies itself right. last year. Right. Does, Isn't that amazing? Where does that come from? Right. It's, and that's, the, that's uh, an interesting kind of human psychology of how we think of things nowadays. If you don't have um, someone who's got a gun to your head um, versus, you know, the, the federal or, or state government coming in and either seizing assets uh, to your point without any notification or um, proof that there's been some type of um, illegal activity committed, it seems to me that if uh, the human psychology would say that the person who has the gun to your head that's taking the $20 out of your, your pocket, it feels like that's a bit bigger assault than the federal government or the state government coming in and taking thousands, if not millions of dollars, which we know has happened. Um, this has been a fascinating conversation, Chris. I, I don't know, I feel like we're, we're almost to the hour mark here and I wanna be respectful of your time. I know you're a very, very busy guy and it's always a pleasure to talk to you. You have so much um, to contribute and I learn so much every time we connect. Is there anything um, in closing that you would like to say to everyone? Well, uh, for anybody listening, this is this is what I do in the world. I, I just figure stuff out and I'm an information scout and I'm constantly every day, seven days a week, I'm figuring out what's happened in the world. I talk to what I call my tribe about that. Um, and so at peakprosperity.com, you can find that. And uh, with a lot of great stuff going on there and a wonderful tribe of people. And, and the way I would characterize us is we're curious and we're very interested in knowing where the puck is going to be so we can skate there. Cause this is a period of massive change or many of these things we're talking about are very important. They capture a lot of my attention, COVID to civil asset forfeiture, but, but they're really symptoms. And if you can understand where we are at that, at that larger system level right now, I think you can understand what these are symptoms of. And, and once you get your hands around those symptoms, I think it's, and what the actual causes are, it really is clear that, hey, we're gonna need each other big time. There's gonna be some pretty major disruptions coming across all sorts of different spheres. And that's, I just want people to, to be as resilient and as happy as possible and to thrive. And, and so that's, that's my work in the world. Thank you for the chance to say that here. Um, but that's what I do every day. So always happy well, to talk about it. Well, for those of you who have not looked up Chris, I highly encourage you to look him up. I highly encourage you to follow him. I highly encourage you to visit his website, read his books. Uh, You will, I guarantee, learn something new every time you hear Chris speak. I know I certainly do. So thank you so much, Chris. Uh, It's been a pleasure and I'm looking forward to doing this again. Thank you. It's been a pleasure and I look forward to it too. From all of us at The Unity Project, thank you for listening to today's podcast. We hope to continue producing content that amplifies voices, strategies, and resources. Please keep in mind that The Unity Project is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that relies on the contributions of our generous supporters to fuel the work we do in this movement. If you value our efforts, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution today by visiting our website at www.unityproject.com and clicking the donate button. We very much appreciate your continued support and confidence, without which our work wouldn't be possible.